my anger is useful and it can be beautiful and it can be completely necessary, especially in a world where anti-blackness and colonialism is, is so complex and constantly innovating itself. How could I not have to change through that process and, and be a deeper version of myself? Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Prince Shakur, author of When They Tell You To Be Good, a memoir that charts his political coming of age as a closeted queer kid in a Jamaican family to a radicalized adult traveler, writer, and anarchist in Obama and Trump's America. As readers follow Prince from Athens, Ohio, to Big Sky, Montana, Yellowstone National Park, and Standing Rock, North Dakota, as well as around the world to France, to the Philippines, what emerges, writes Publishers Weekly, is a moving portrait of the artist as a young activist, yes, but also a portrait of a young, gay black man learning to love and to know himself. Prince Shakur is a queer Jamaican-American freelance journalist, cultural essayist, and grassroots organizer with a BA in creative writing from Ohio University. His words have been featured in Teen Vogue, Catapult, Level, Electric Literature, and more. Shakur is the proud writer-in-residence at Sangam House, Twelve Arts, the studios of Key West, and La Maison Baldwin. Montana and Wyoming are parts of your journey or journeys, and Big Sky, Yellowstone National Park are two of many places in this book. You write about them as being trying times filled with mayhem, and your time here in Montana and Wyoming, again, is referenced throughout the memoir as it it doesn't seem very positive, right? But I'm wondering what your time here helped you to understand about yourself and what those times, what their role is in this journey that your memoir is chronicling. It was a bit of everything, honestly, because yes, I talk about like my racist coworkers and the weird experiences I had and how much I was drinking. And a lot of that is very unhealthy in so many ways. But I also deeply appreciate that time because I was really into beatnik literature and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And I think when you're developing as a writer and you're in your early 20s, I just really view that space and time as when you really need to experiment, you need to go out into the world, you need to kind of get beaten up by the world in order to figure out what kind of adult you want to be because really those sections of the book are me kind of exiting the safety of college and university and what I consider young adulthood and crossing this threshold into being an adult, contending with anti-Blackness, kind of figuring out how my politics exist in the world beyond just being a student organizer. And Yellowstone, I think I learned a lot of lessons about my queerness, about consent, about boundaries, about how I connect to other people and how, I mean, really a lot of the Wyoming and Montana sections, I look, I read back on it and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of making the same mistake again and again. I'm putting myself in these places that are beautiful and very rural. I'm working a lot and I'm also kind of taking what I can get socially. And I think in each of those sections by the end, I have to make a really difficult choice about 
the kind of person that I want to be socially, um, the kinds of people that I want to surround myself with, and what kind of boundaries I want to set as a Black person um, in the U.S. and in this world. And I view Wyoming and Montana really as a part of the book where I got to decide what kind of adult I wanted to be and what kind of standards I wanted to set. And even though it was really traumatic in a lot of ways, I wouldn't take it back because I got to hitchhike a lot and meet random people while hitchhiking. I got to go to weird music shows. I got to camp out in Yellowstone. I mean, I got to experience so many beautiful things in relation to the environment and nature. And now that I live in New York City, I look back at that time and I'm like, oh, I wish I could just go back and be in Big Sky walking around with my friends, sitting in some field, drinking beer. Um, and, and so even though those sections have like a deep sense of entrapment, I think that's alongside a sense of freedom that I almost felt. Because sometimes when I travel, the part of it that I love the most is this sensation like, oh, I, it feels like I'm running away. It feels like I'm off in the middle of nowhere in the world. And something about that to me is just really exciting and generative on an emotional level, but definitely on a storytelling level. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I think I love like, especially when I talk to other black people about the book, I, I like to ask them like, Oh, of all the places I went to in the book, like what part of it were you most confused by or just kind of perplexed by? And it's always the Wyoming and Yellowstone section. Um, and, and something about that to me is really amusing because it just kind of shows me, I guess, some of the uniqueness of the ways that I've traveled. You used the word mayhem to describe your time here in the West, and the word calamity appears in your memoir many, many times. And I'm wondering if you'd characterize the time period of the book, not just these Western parts, but this time in your life as calamitous. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) I've done a lot of interviews and um, one thing that I realized is um, when a lot of people ask me like, oh, why? why did this book, why did you write this book? Or where did the idea for it come from? And especially like 2014, 2015, 2016, especially 2016, like in in just 2016, I was living in Seattle. I got fired from my job. I got a new job. I started reading Baldwin. I left Seattle. I went to France. I went to my first riot. I worked in Montana again. I left Montana. I moved back to Ohio. I worked uh, a 2016 election job. I went to Standing Rock. Um, I got arrested for weed possession. I went to the Philippines. And that was all just in one year. And I really say it was calamitous because I even have this feeling now in my life where I can look back at just the last year. And if I list off all of the things that I've done or the things that I've achieved... I maybe hold myself to a really high standard and I don't always notice the complexity of the things that I've experienced, but on like a real and material level, it's a lot of transition and it's a lot of change to go through. And and I feel like adapting to these different environments and having that complexity really helped me figure out how to be an artist that is able to pivot and figure out different kinds of writing or different ways of existing in different places. And, 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 some of the people that inspire me the most um, are people that can adapt and be in different places and talk to different kinds of people and not be closed-minded. Um, and, and so I think if there is an opposite end to like the calamity and mayhem of those spaces is that it's also taught me that 
I am very versatile, I'm very resilient, and that's a muscle, that's a skill that you continue to develop. And it's almost like if you don't use it, it, it can go away. Um, and so it it was chaotic, calamitous, but um, I feel like it made me a stronger person. You said that you're still kind of in this space where you're doing a lot in a single year. But if it's not calamitous, um, you know, this word that we're describing, this particular part of your life, if your life now is not calamitous, how would you describe your life now? Or is there a word or phrase that you might describe your life now as? Post-memoir. I would say I'm experiencing a new kind of phase of reckoning. I'm thinking of different questions in relation to myself and the world around me. Um, I'm trying to find ways to stretch myself as an artist. Um, I mean, it's kind of in the last chapter of the book, um, but I kind of say, uh, like, I'm, I'm tired of writing about my father. I'm tired of being the boy that is always longing for a father. And even though some of that longing will always be inside of me, I feel like writing this book, I was able to put a big part of that to rest. I was able to give myself certain answers that I don't think anyone else would have been able to give me. And now that I've confronted some of these things and I've found some of these answers, um, I have more room to think about other things that I want to do or other kind of things that I want to embody as a person. And a lot of that is like continuing to explore my queerness, continuing to kind of explore anarchism or mutual aid or my politics or how my politics operate in different spaces. And so that's why I kind of say like I'm still I'm still confronting a lot of difficult things, but I think giving myself some of the space that this memoir allowed, it's also bringing me to a kind of peace that I didn't really have before. So this memoir is so many things, and one of the things that it is, it's a record of your early activism. And it sounds like that activism is still going strong, but I'm wondering what it means to you to be an activist. What does it mean to be radical, um, an anarchist? What, how do you think about these terms in proximity to your identity? To me, being an anarchist, an activist, an organizer, Oh, that's such a good question. It brings me closer to the deeper parts of these identities that I explore in this book. Um, so when I was in college and Michael Brown was murdered and I started organizing around Black Lives Matter, that was definitely a period of time where I feel like I started to understand my Blackness in a new way. And it's kind of in that Ferguson October section where me and the other protesters are marching to um, the Ferguson Police Department. And I'm kind of talking about how I'm noticing all of the Black people in the neighborhood and all of the children in the houses. And I'm willing to kind of make a new sacrifice in terms of how I'm willing to put my body on the line in these spaces. Um, and, and, and so in a lot of ways becoming an organizer has just really brought me closer to all of these parts of myself that I feel like other people or different experiences I've had tried to pull me away from, whether it was being younger and being bullied because people said I talked white, but then organizing around BLM, I realized like blackness can take on so many different forms or in writing this memoir and 
kind of figuring out how to write about my life experiences and organizing, it really gave me a lot of respect for previous activists and other political memoirs and other like radical writers who have figured out ways to distill these experiences into written language. Um, and, and, and even writing this book, um, it has taught me a lot about being Jamaican and the Caribbean and how the U.S. has made so many parts of the world so much more difficult to live in, especially post-independence. And, and so my organizing, I guess I'm also saying that my organizing is intrinsically tied to my writing. And the more I experience something on either end of the scale, whether it's deepening my craft as a writer or it's deepening my skill sets and the spaces that I'm in as an organizer, um, they both kind of feed each other and they both help me embody a fuller version of myself, a version of myself that I wouldn't have been able to without these really difficult confrontations around police violence or colonialism or anti-Blackness in other spaces or cultural organizing. Um, and, and so it really just brings me closer to myself. And, and, it, and, I, and I think it's, it's like two truths exist at the same time because in a lot of those sections where I'm at riots or I'm at a protest and really intense political violence is happening, I think you can also experience being detached from your body or disassociating in order to survive that moment. But I think if, if you find the place to reckon with those moments and those places and those things and those experiences, that process is what brings you closer to yourself. Um, and so, yeah, and, and it's also just taught me that my anger is useful and it can be beautiful and it can be completely necessary, especially in a world where capitalism and, and anti-Blackness and colonialism is is so complex and constantly innovating itself. Um, how, how could I not have to change through that process and and be a deeper version of myself. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with Prince Shakur, author of the memoir, When They Tell You To Be Good. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you want to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You may have already answered this follow-up question that I had, whether your writing practice is a part of those identities as well, right? Your writing practice now intertwined with your role as an organizer and anarchist and um, activist. I'm wondering, do you do you think that those philosophies now guide your writing practice and vice versa? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I, I loving James Baldwin so much, um, even right now I'm preparing a lecture that I'm going to do in the summer where I'm revisiting um, the moral responsibility of the artist, which is a really famous speech by Baldwin. Um, and... And yeah, I, I think learning how to write about these experiences, it, I don't know, I, I think on the deepest level, um, confronting all these different violences and engaging in all these different politics, it forces me to look at my own mortality. And a big thing that I was thinking of when I was starting this memoir and going through a lot of those things that I mentioned in 2016 was that I 
my goal is still to make a body of work that rivals my lifetime. Because when you live in a world where people who look like you can be taken out by the state at any moment, what does it mean to write? What does it mean to make art? What does it mean to try to distill your experiences in a way that is accurate and deviates from what capitalism or anti-Blackness or white supremacy tries to do. And so I really view my writing as a sort of active opposition to what I consider to be the American project. And that takes work, it takes research, it takes dedication, and I'm constantly trying to find ways to like innovate form or queer the way that I tell narratives or figure out um, how to get across not just the, the the experience of being an organizer or being radical or being in opposition to these things, but the emotional reality of what these things look like. Because I think when we can engage with people on an emotional level through these really heavy or complex experiences, it makes learning about liberation or Black liberation or queer politics way more accessible because it's less about hierarchy or needing to use the right language. And it's more about how vulnerable and honest can you be? Um, and, and, and I feel like that's at the core of so much of my writing. You mentioned this idea of confronting your mortality. And I feel like that's so much a part of this memoir as well. And I feel like this might be a good place for you to read the passage that I've asked you to read um, that features the titular line, when they tell you to be good. Would you mind reading that now for me, Prince? When they tell you to be good, to be well-mannered and to follow the rules because this is how America will let you live. They do not tell you that even with your college degree, America will place the barrel of its gun in your tooth-torn mouth, break your back in its car and feed you to the pigs. We do not survive what we don't even begin to confront. Silences can kill us when we give them too much power. I'm going to follow up your reading of that passage with a couple of short quotes from the book that I'd like you kind of to speak to, and I'll follow them with a question. The first one, Bell Hooks described the process, quote, asked to give up the true self in order to realize the patriarchal ideal, boys learn self-betrayal early and are rewarded for these acts of soul murder, end quote. These sentiments let me know that black men are both afraid to die and due to the confines of manhood often have parts of them die sooner rather than later. Suffering, whether received or caused, becomes a qualification for being a man. And then I'm going to follow up with... In the pit of my belly, even at 15, I already knew that being gay meant that I had to be prepared to die. It was the first lesson about the possibility of my own death that I'd learned. Only after this lesson did I learn that being black meant that I had to be prepared to die too. So I want to speak to this idea that as a black gay man, you you have to be prepared to die. Um, despite this fear that is so inherent in that knowledge, I didn't necessarily read fear in the text. It wasn't embedded in the language so much as you were saying, this is something that I am coming to terms with. And I'm not quite sure what my question is here. I, I kind of thought about this a lot and I'm not entirely sure, but I'm wondering if you might speak towards the idea that this early death is a very real possibility for you and rendering that idea in language in your memoir that reads almost the way that you've written it is almost like a resistance, a confidence, a perseverance, and, and almost a confrontation. Does that make sense to you? Is that a, more of a craft question, perhaps? This is a beautiful question. Um, 
Mm. I would say a big part of the reason I wanted to write this book was because I've never known my biological father and not knowing him is probably one of the saddest things that I'll ever experience in my life. And what is piled on top of that is um, a lot of the explorations of violence that I'm navigating in the book. And so it's not only not knowing someone, but also knowing that they were capable of horrible things, great things, that they were complex. And knowing that truth from literally basically since I was born and and living with that and holding it, um, I think it's just made mortality like a, con- a continuous confrontation that will be in my life. And, and so in some ways it's sad, but it's also the only truth that I really know. Like I will never really know him. I will always be searching for him through photographs or stories that other people can tell me. And so I think some of the lack of fear that you're detecting is that in order to know my father, I have to be willing to accept and confront the fact that he's gone and that he died in a very violent way. And Black people, marginalized people, disenfranchised people die in violent ways all the time. And and I think when we become so afraid of death that we don't even know how to confront it, we also don't really engage with life either. Um, and 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 maybe that's also what you're sensing in the book. It's it's this reality that for me to truly live a full and meaningful and big life, I also have to be willing to be in situations or spaces where I might not be the safest, but I'm experiencing life on a much more intense and real and beautiful and confusing and sometimes sad level, and. So much of that is mingled with my father and my queerness and my family's culture. Like there's a lot of love and beauty and resilience there, but there's also a lot of compromise. And, and especially when I was reading bell hooks and learning about masculinity and learning about gender and trying to situate these things in meaningful ways, um, I would constantly think of the phrase gender is a negotiation. And so if I'm not willing to make the same negotiations as other people and that puts me at risk, am I going to be afraid through that process or am I going to find community and find pieces of history that inspire me so I can kind of engage in that resistance in as powerful as a way as I can? And thank you for that question because I've never really had that asked to me before, but I, I appreciate it. I mean, I think you articulated it so well. You used the word acceptance, right? Like you can be fearful of something and still accept it. And perhaps I think maybe that's what I'm reading in the book. Um, you spoke to this idea of your culture and you're, you're Jamaican-American and you write at length early in the memoir about Jamaica's history, about rude boy culture. And we're speaking about masculinity and manhood. And this rude boy culture is a masculinity based in violence and an outlaw mindset uh, that grew to dominate Jamaica in and after the 1960s. This is a really long preface, but you mentioned briefly that this violence often left women single mothers. They're forced to raise their children alone after the murder of these fathers. You also write at great length about the psychological and even sometimes physical abuse you endured at the hands of your mother. 
And I'm wondering if you can speak to the ways that Black women may or may not have internalized that rude boy culture too. And maybe it might help listeners um, if you could talk a little bit more about that rude boy culture. But I'm wondering how that violence was both different from and a part of the ways that not only men, but women in Jamaica were taught to survive. I think in cultures where I mean, it, I mean, it's also the patriarchy, <laughs> but I think when under the patriarchy, when men are allowed or encouraged to live in these wild ways and are given all these loose boundaries and they're allowed to do things that women aren't, um, when women are left alone to raise children, um, especially black children, you have to be protectors of them. I mean, so much of how my mother worked to raise me and my brother um, in Ohio in the hood was to protect us from the neighborhood. We didn't get to play outside like a lot of the other kids. We, I mean, my there's there a lot of anti-blackness built into um, a lot of my childhood, and 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 I just think that protectiveness can also involve violence. Like I, I think you can protect someone and love them, but if that protection is too tied to a sense of fear or a sense of control or a sense of loss or being entrapped by a previous trauma, um, then that protection, even if it is by a woman, um, can reinforce a lot of these patriarchal violences. And I kind of try to write about it in the book, but um, I remember being really young and my mother kind of explaining to me like, you never walk behind a woman in a store. You always walk in front of her. And even though I think you can read that in some ways as, um, as like not making women uncomfortable in the ways that you walk near or around them, especially as a black boy or a black man. Um, when I was a kid, I just always kind of saw it in the way that my mother expressed it to me. I always kind of saw it as like, Oh, you want me to walk in front of you because like, I'm supposed to exhibit or practice this kind of dominance. Um, and, and I think growing up, I was always in resistance to a lot of these lessons about how to act or how to not shake my head when I was talking or how to not hold my wrist in a certain way. Um, and, and, I, and I think a lot of the sort of patriarchal violence that can come through when single mothers are raising um, Black kids, it's, it's th that protection the ways that they want to protect us can also sort of recycle the, the harms of the patriarchy or the or these gendered violences. And I really wanted to do the work in the book to kind of try and expose that because, yes, I grew up with my stepfather for a number of years, but in the dynamic that I saw between my parents, I always saw my mother as more of the disciplinarian, the person that would get angry really fast. And my stepfather was always the person to calm things down. And so when he went to prison, I was really exposed to a lot of my mother's rage and a lot of what I felt like was her narcissism at the time. And also a lot of the trauma that she was reacting to through what I represented to her. And so I, I think some of what I'm speaking to is that in order for us to kind of reckon with the patriarchy, we all have to individually and collectively like confront these traumas that we've, we've experienced. Um, and so in a lot of ways, like if I wasn't doing the work to process these things that I've processed in the book, um, I would probably be 
a much worse man. I would be much more complicit in a lot of these evils that are here because of the gender binary and and it, it's just something that I don't, I don't know. It's 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 just like very much a lived-in experience for me. Prince, thank you so much for joining me today. I so enjoyed this conversation. And again, congratulations on your memoir as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your beautiful questions. That was Prince Shakur, author of When They Tell You To Be Good, out now from Tin House Books. Look for more information about Prince at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.